Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. <laughs> Ew, no. No, nah, I'm keeping we it. We didn't know. Yep, it's it. Oh, I know I owe you my life, but no. Yes. Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay, welcome back to Murder in the Land of Oz. <laughs> A podcast that Jess is now regretting starting with me. No, I'm not. I just don't want to say good day. You don't, don't have to. It can g- be my thing. Okay. I can be the one that says good day and you can be the one that says everything else. Righto. Okay. So we're into our third episode for our New South Wales season. Um, it's my turn tonight. I'm sure you're all devastatingly excited. But can I just relay before I get cracking my word document? I've had to use ooh, Tinder. <laughs> can we please be professional for one? <laughs> okay, I'm turning my – there we go. Do not disturb. Um, It's my turn tonight, and I'm sure you're all very excited. <laughs> um, But guess what? I – I, so my word document for my site, I need like the the font quite big so I can read it. So it's at 16, but then still it's an 18-page document. So if you want to get snacks, yeah, maybe lie down on a bed somewhere. Pour yourself a cup of tea. If you're doing a cross-country road trip or perhaps a long flight somewhere. Enjoy yourself. Yes. Take your time. I will say on the eating front um, – this is really graphic crime that like none of the crimes that we've done have been spectacularly innocent or happy go lucky, but this one is a lot. So if you are eating, I'm giving you fair warning, okay? We recommend a dry saltine. Yeah. And just a general warning for this episode because it's um pretty gross. A little gnarly. Yeah. Okay. So um the uh Case that I decided to pick for tonight's episode is the tragic rape and murder of Anita Cobby. So let's get cracking. Anita Lorraine Cobby was born on the 2nd of November 1959 to parents Gary and a graphic artist with the RAAF and Grace, a nurse. They were a close-knit family with a younger sibling, Catherine, following Anita. Anita was described as having a very beautiful and wholesome spirit. She loved to shop with her sister and loved nothing more than losing herself in drawing. She graduated from Evans High School in Blacktown, where she was the top student in her grade with her HSC in 1977. Her father, Gary, noted that she loved dances and ironing her hair straight. And doll, don't we all? (laughs) Um, Not me personally. (laughs) 
Next door neighbour Anne King suggested that Anita enter the New South Wales Spastic Centre's Miss Australia quest. Now, back then, Miss Australia competition was less of a beauty pageant and more of a way to raise money for people with special needs. So between 1979... Also, you could say the word spastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's just, that's what the organisation yeah. was called. That was yeah, that was the politically correct Not anymore, I can say that for sure. Nope. Um, so between 1979 and 1980, Anita raised more than $10,000 selling raffle tickets. And finally, at the formal ceremony, beating 56 other competitors, became she became Miss Western Suburbs. Uh, Gary and Grace... Her parents noted that Anita had a lot of empathy for others, and as much as her and as much outer beauty that she had, it was all inside as well. Uh, she missed out on Miss Sydney, but won herself a trip to Hawaii with some of the other competitors. Giving up the catwalk, she found herself an office job, and Anita applied also to the Goulburn Police Academy. And then following that, she decided she wanted to follow in the footsteps of her mum, so she enrolled in a nursing degree at Sydney Hospital. She moved into the nurses' quarters in Winston Lodge, and this is when she would encounter John Cobby. Now, John was three years older than Anita, and he had grown up on the eastern side of Sydney. Getting through school with decent grades, he left school and began traveling around the country. He began a job as a laundry worker at Gosford Hospital and then wanted to apply to be a wardsman, but the hospital was like, "Mm, you're too little, no thanks, but you could be really suitable um, for a a position as a trainee nurse. So at the beginning of his training, he fell in love with the work of nursing, but after a big blow up with one of his bosses, he decided that he was going to leave and started traveling around again. And that lasted two years. He accepted a position at Sydney Hospital and upon moving into the nurse's quarters at Winston Lodge, that's when he came across Anita. Um, He said... Just these ringlets of hair everywhere. God, she was beautiful and I thought far too good for me. From gathering information among the other nurses, he discovered Anita's past as a beauty queen and decided he was punching well above his weight. One day they struck up a conversation and he got it together and he asked her out and she said yes. Their first date was at a Surrey's Hill, Surrey Hills Lebanese restaurant. I haven't had Lebanese. Have Neither you had Lebanese? I, no. We should do that. We should. Yay. Um... So after that first date, they became inseparable. And after a little over a year of dating, they became engaged. And I realized I said, I meant to say engaged and it says enraged on there, (laughs) but it's engaged. Um, And they set the date to marry in March of 1982. After becoming engaged, John and Anita discovered that Anita was pregnant. They were over the moon at the thought of becoming new parents and they were excited about their future. But unfortunately, Anita suffered a miscarriage and um, they were devastated, but hopeful at the future prospect of them one day becoming parents. Their wedding, they described, was like any other wedding of young newlyweds that were strapped for cash. It was simple but full of love. Anita continued her work at the Sydney Hospital. She was regarded for her caring and bright nature. John at that time was working as a temporary nurse because it's better pay. Uh, They went out to dinner and concerts like any other normal couple. They bought a boat and would sail through Sydney Harbour with their two dogs on board. John had always wanted to train horses, so he contacted his cousin who hooked him up up with a job in Coffs Harbour. So John and Anita moved there. Um, John and Anita were both working as nurses. John was working as a nurse by night so he could train horses through the day. Um, At one of the races, John placed a bet on one of his own horses And it came first and that won him $10,000. So he and Anita decided with the money that they were going to travel to the USA and to Europe. And, you know, 
young people, when they were away, they ran out of money. So they borrowed more from their families back home so they could continue to travel. But when that money ran out, they decided that they should head back to Sydney. So upon their return to Sydney in 1985, John was content in their old life. He was just happy to settle down. He wanted to start a family, but Anita was restless. She wanted to continue to try new things and to travel. Um, and it was kind of decided that they both were in different stages of their life. So they decided to separate. Um, John returned to his family in Rockdale and Anita moved back in with her parents in Blacktown. Okay. <sighs> okay. So six weeks after their separation on Sunday, the 2nd of February, 1986, Anita was having breakfast with her mother. She told her mom, Grace, that after work, she'd be going out to dinner with a few friends and that she'd be home late. Um, the next morning, Grace checked on Anita's, uh, checked in Anita's room and, uh, Anita wasn't there. So Grace was just unfazed. She just thought Anita must have slept over at one of her friend's house and then she had a shift later that afternoon. So she's probably just stayed there. So she didn't have to worry about coming home and going back. Um, but then uh, that afternoon, Anita's boss rang the house and was asking if they knew where Anita was and because it was quite out of character for her not to shop for her shift and to not be in contact because she was really reliable. So Gary and his dad and Grace began to worry. Um, and then on Monday, the 3rd of February, 1986, Gary took a photo of Anita to Blacktown Police Station and reported his eldest daughter missing. Uh, after calling all of Anita's friends, Grace got into contact with John Cobby. John had last heard from Anita the day before and immediately became worried because he realized how out of character her disappearance was. Uh, the next day, he and Anita had planned to meet at his sister's, sister's house uh, his sister Gaynor, and on his way, he heard a news bulletin up on the radio that said that a body of a young woman was found in a paddock. Okay, it's a very short time frame. Yeah. So Tuesday, February the fourth of nineteen eighty six, a farmer noticed something strange. A group of cattle in the paddock were congregated in one spot. So after leaving to go out and doing something, and he came back, the cows were still there. So that was weird. So he decided to get um, onto his motorbike. And he discovered the naked body of a woman. She was lying on her stomach. So the farmer ran back to his motorbike and back to the house and he contacted the Blacktown police. Um, the first officers on the scene questioned the farmer to see if he'd heard anything out of the ordinary over the last couple of days. So Rain Road, which the paddock backed onto, was sort of um, pretty desolate and it was known as a like lover's lane of sorts. So he just, um, you know, a lot of young people would head down there and muck about. Um, he'd heard screams either on Saturday or Sunday night coming from Reen Road, um, but he just thought the screams were just people partying. So um, <clears throat> Detective Sergeant Graham Rosie Rosetta had been on leave at this point. Um, he'd received a call from his superior to get back to work because a body had been found. Um, his partner, Detective Sergeant Ian Kennedy, who would become the lead investigator, was working with him. So Rosetta noticed that the body was lying 70 metres from the fence of the paddock. The look in the girl's eyes, I will never forget. This is what Rosetta said. Um, those dead eyes. You could see that she'd just gone through hell. The only item of um, the only item that was basically found at the crime scene was um, the victim's wedding ring. It was a Russian wedding ring. Um, and my mum actually has one of these, so I knew exactly what it was as soon as I read this. It's a uh, wedding ring. It's a ring that's got like three interlocking bands. So my mum's one, it's just all yellow gold. But with um, Anita Cobby's one, it was uh, one band was rose gold, one band was white gold, and the other was yellow. So with like, you know, it wasn't just like a standard ring. So the police took it and um, put it in an evidence bag because it would help identify the victim, obviously. Um, 
so back at the police station, Detective Kennedy put the um, – no, he found the missing persons report that was filled by Gary Lynch and obviously there was a photo accompanying it and uh, Detective Kennedy knew that it was her as soon as he saw the photo. He knew that it was Anita Cobby. <sighs> okay. So Rosetta and Kennedy went to the Lynch's house. Gary and Grace and Anita's younger sister Catherine were there. And that's when they were shown the ring and Catherine remarked that it, it looked like Anita's ring but this one had rust on it. So it couldn't have been Anita's, but um, Ian Kennedy had to correct her that it wasn't. It wasn't rust. It was dried blood. Oh my gosh! Um, John Cobby was asked to go and identify uh, Anita's remains, but he said he wasn't able to do that. And um, Anita's mother Grace put her hand up to go and do it because she said she was a nurse and that she'd seen a lot of bodies in her time and that she was capable of doing it and. Detective Kennedy wouldn't let her and um, so Gary Lynch had to go and do it on his own and in retrospect all of them have said probably shouldn't have done that. He probably should have taken his wife with him because mm. nobody needs to see that on their own. Um, so Gary Lynch went on his own and the second the sheet was lifted he knew he knew that it was his daughter Anita and when he could gather words he said, I wish I could say that it's someone else's daughter. So Kennedy advised that um, – advise Gary that it, it would be best for them to use the media to their advantage, um, talking to the media about media about who Anita was, getting her face out there to help jog someone's memory so that they could kind of piece together Anita's last few hours. Um, Gary was also advised that everyone close to Anita would be interviewed and, of course, they were going to begin with um, Anita's estranged husband, John Cobby. So John was taken to Blacktown Police Station. Um, Kennedy began with simple questions to sort of get to know about John and Anita's life, um, piecing together like where John's whereabouts was. So Sunday night, which was the night of Anita's disappearance and the probable time of murder, John was at home with his family. Um, the Monday night when she was reported missing by Gary and Grace, he was out at dinner with his father, which was when he received the call that Anita was missing. John explained that he and Anita were trying to patch things up and that's when Kennedy started to get antsy and um, he began to ask John, ask John if he was the one that killed Anita and Kennedy actually pushed John Cobby into a wall and John Cobby said, yep, I did it, I must have, because he was just so racked with guilt over what had happened. Mm. Um, so Lynn Bradshaw and Elaine Bray, they were um, the two nurses that Anita was with the night that she disappeared and they mentioned that John had – been somewhat harassing Anita since the separation and apparently there was rumour that Anita was also dating another nurse from the hospital. So um, that put John Cobby at the top of um, Detective Kennedy's list of suspects because of jealousy and... And like statistics. Yeah. It's a lot of the time if there's a spouse involved, the spouse has done it. But we'll get... We'll, hold on. We can't jump the gun. Um, so uh, after reading the autopsy report, Kennedy noted that... Um, Anita was most probably killed between uh, Sunday night and the early hours of Monday morning and most probably there was more than one killer. I'm going to have a sip of water. <laughs> okay. So Anita's movements on the 2nd of Feb uh, 1986 began with her arriving at work at 7. Um, after finishing work at 3.30, Anita, Lynn and Elaine stayed at the hospital to have chats and have coffee until about quarter past five before they changed out of their uniforms and they went to dinner. The girls left the restaurant at 8.30 and Lynn offered to drive Anita to Central Station and that was the last time that anyone saw Anita alive. So 
5th of Feb, 1986, a young police officer working at um, Blacktown Police Station who actually also went to school with Anita discovered a phone call that was made from a young man and his sister the night that Anita went missing and that she was probably killed. And it was that they had heard screams from inside the house. They looked outside and they saw a woman being um, dragged into a car. So they lived on Newton Road, which was right in the middle between Blacktown train station and where Anita lived. And it was looking like after Anita had been dropped off at Central, she got on a train to Blacktown and was abducted while she was walking home from the station. So the time of the call on Sunday night, um, so at the time of the call, um, police officers had gone out and inspected after the call. They um, checked it out, but they just couldn't find anything. Um, so the 14-year-old kid who'd made the phone call um, said that it was a white Holden Commodore with a grey undercoat and also mentioned that his older brother and um, his older brother's girlfriend went and tried to find the car. And they knew that Rain Road was sort of like a lover's lane, so they went to Rain Road, they found the Commodore, they couldn't find anything inside of it, um, and so they left. And also there were a lot of other people on the street that either um, tried to tailgate the car, like tried to get – like follow the car and find, you know, what was going on, but they lost it or there were a bunch of people that heard screams as well. That's crazy. So there was actually like a fair number of witnesses or ear witnesses. Yeah. So um, Blacktown train station is about two kilometres away from the Lynch home. So normally um, what would happen is Anita would get off the train and there were um, pay phones. So Anita would call her dad on the pay phone. But the night that Anita was – the night that she vanished and the probable night that she died, um, they were all vandalized and unusable. So she had no way of contacting home. Um, Also it was February. So the weather was quite nice and warm. So Gary noted that his daughter wouldn't have called a taxi, that she would have just walked the two Ks home. Mm. Um, At this point, Anita's face is like covering every major news outlet in New South Wales and the ferocity of the attack like shocked everybody. Um, No one that knew Anita had any unkind words to say about her and calls flooded Blacktown police station, which, you know, led police on wild goose chases, I guess, and also obviously checking the sex offender list, but they had no sign of the killer. So then enter John Laws, the radio presenter. So he was really popular at the time and he was leaked the autopsy report of Anita Cobby Cobby and he read it out on the air. So people were like pissed. So like not I'm only pissed. yeah, not only shocked at like the thought of degrading this poor woman and showing no respect for Anita or her family, but also like the ferociousness of the attack. Mm. So everybody like listening knew one hundred percent what happened to her. Yeah, like, ugh. No one needs to know that. No one. No, no one needs to know that except for doctors. Um. So and it was so the police held this massive inquiry to find out the, who had leaked the autopsy report, but they couldn't find it and it was never discovered. Um, So with his profile, John Laws had officially made Anita's murder national news. So the Premier of the New South Wales at the time, Neville Rand, put up a $50,000 reward for information leading to the capture of Anita's killer and then doubled it literally like three days later. So $100,000. That's huge. (sighs) The detectives felt the pressure of the country on them and even though they had no physical evidence proving that it was Anita that Anita caught the train to Blacktown that night. It was decided that Anita must have been the woman abducted from Newton Road. The police decided to do a reenactment of Anita's last probable movements from Central Station. 
um, with Debbie Wallace, who was a police officer playing the role of Anita. So this took place on February 9th, 1986. And this is what Debbie had to say. She said it was a quiet and eerie, it was quiet and eerie walking in her footsteps towards what we knew were most likely likely her last moments. It was not a nice feeling. So the result of the reenactment was not of any information leading to the killer, but the detectives realized that Anita couldn't have been on the 9.12 p.m. train to Blacktown as they originally thought. Um, she had most probably gotten the 8.45 p.m. train. So from central to Blacktown is 40 minutes on the tr- – like it's a 45 – it's a 40-minute train journey. And then from Blacktown to Newton Road is 12 minutes. So that would put her at Newton Road on nine, at 9.45. Mm-hmm. So Anita's funeral was absolutely packed. It was mentioned in the service, the priest mentioned how much Anita loved her family and how passionate she was about her job as a nurse, how she thrived in learning new things and she just wanted to discover. And um, Gary and Grace Lynch, Anita's parents, uh, were composed in their grief. And I have to say throughout the entire trial, any news footage that I saw of them, these people were unbelievable at how they held themselves. Um, John Cobby, however, was devastated and shouted in the middle of the service, don't take her away from me, please don't take her away. So by the time of the funeral, um, John had been cleared as a suspect. Um, On February 11th, which was the day after um, Anita's funeral, Detective Rosetta received word of a stolen car, which was almost identical to the one seen on Newton Road on February 2nd and got the names of the men that were responsible for the theft. And they were... John Travers, Michael Murdoch, and Les Murphy. So John Travers, he was from Doonside. He grew up in poor conditions. He was known for violent behavior. He was wanted in Western Australia for a number of charges, including the rape of a man at Knife Point. There's also, and I specify this warning again, okay, there was this really fucked up story that was going on, that was going around about Travers, and that was on his 18th birthday, he, um, raped a sheep and slit its throat. What? When he finished, he cooked the sheep and he ate it. What? So this history of violence and let's face it, insane behavior <laughs> and the fact that he was named as someone stealing a car identical to the one that Anita was seen being forced into. Yeah, so he did it. Like the top of the list for investigators. And he was known to travel around with Michael Murdoch and Les Murphy. So Michael Murdoch was 18 and he was sort of the puppy dog of John Travers. Les Murphy was 22 and was known to hang around John Mur- uh, uh, known to hang around um, Murdoch and Travers and he was also dating John Travers's sister. So the three of them were at a party. Oh god. Um, and witnesses noticed that they had left for a significant amount of time. They all had different stories as to where they'd been. At this point, detectives were sworn to secrecy as to the new leads into Anita's murder. With the media being right on their tail, they knew that if something were to leak, Travers, Murdoch and Murphy could easily slip through their fingers and go underground. Uh, Detectives were going undercover and working with informants to try and determine the whereabouts of Travers, Murdoch and Murphy. And there was no sign of them. Ooh, Fifi doll. Cool it. Um... There was no sign of them until Les Murphy showed up at the Travers family home and it was discovered that John and Michael were hiding out at John's uncle's house. So 6 a.m. Friday, the 21st of Feb, 1986, the task force assembled at Blacktown Police Station. They split in half, one led by Detective Sergeant Rosetta and the other led by Detective Sergeant Kennedy. So they had to raid two houses at the same time. 
So they were supported by officers by the, of the tactical response unit who were used in high-risk operations. So now, emotions were high in the investigators um, and Ian Kennedy, like, pleaded with them to, like, keep their heads clear and just get it done. They couldn't afford to lose these guys because of because someone got too heavy-handed. So they just, you know. So Kennedy's team went to John Travers's home in Toonside with forced entry with a sledgehammer. Um, they found Les Murphy, who went with a, went with police and refused a lawyer. Rosetta and his team were in Wentworthville at Travers's uncle's place. When they kicked in the door, they accidentally knocked over this massive fish tank, which shattered, and they found Travers in the same bed as Michael Murdoch. And they went with police and they refused lawyers as well. So police under the bed where Murdoch and Travers were laying, they found a blood-stained knife covered by a sheath. So once they were brought into custody, the plan that was developed by police was to question them initially about the stolen car, then they would link it to the murder later on. So Murdoch and Murphy both stated that they were involved in the car theft but denied any involvement in the murder of Anita Cobby. After they had signed statements, um, they'd signed statements um, as to the stolen car, Murdoch and Murphy were were given conditional bail so they were free to go. As soon as they left custody, they were immediately put under surveillance because police were sure of their involvement in the murder of Anita, but they had no physical evidence to tie them to the crime. So Travers was thought to be the ringleader of the group. And during questioning, Travers admitted to his involvement in the theft of the car. Rosetta then brought up the knife that was found under the bed and Travers replied with a cold, dead look, I didn't slit that slut's throat. And at this point, police hadn't mentioned Anita's murder at all in the interview. So Travis explained that the blood on the knife under the bed was from a sheep because he oh, just loved no. he just loved slitting sheep's throats like a fucking psycho. What a loony bin. Um uh, Rosetta pretended to know that he didn't know anything about the story of John Travis's 18th birthday and how fucking insane he is. <laughs> So um, Travis had signed the statement into the theft of the car and he also had to give a blood sample for the outstanding rape warrant that was up in In Western Australia. Um, So Travis was kept in the cells. And at this point, this is when he asked for his auntie um, to bring him some cigarettes. Now, she was his uncle's girlfriend with whom he had a really close relationship. So one of the senior officers, Detective Rao, allowed it and Travis's auntie is now referred in the case as Miss X. So Detective Rao rang Miss X and Miss X on the phone broke down and said, I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you about John and his behavior behavior towards women. So Detective Rao and Miss X met at the Wentworthville, um, Wentworthville RSL and she hadn't been able to sleep for two weeks. So Detective Rao, Detective Rosetta and another detective met with Miss X and Rao approached her and checked that it was her and then they proceeded to an unmarked police car. And she told Detective Rao that John had confessed to crimes to her over the years. He had told her that he had raped both men and women in different places and always carried a knife with him. Miss X had felt that since the discovery of Anita, that since the discovery of Anita, that John might have had something to do with it, even though she had no proof. So Detective Rao and Rosetta got in contact with De- Detective Kennedy to sort out how, how they were going to proceed with Miss X. Um, so what they were going to do is they were going to let Miss X and John have John Travers have a normal conversation in the jail to see that if he see if he would confess to her about the murder. Um, so on February twenty second, nineteen eighty six, Miss X arrived in Blacktown Police Station, and Detective Rao explained that a car had been stolen by John and Michael and Les, and they had and they had suspected that the car had been involved in the abduction of Anita Cobby. 
So Rao instructed Miss X to just simply listen. The conversation was to be as natural as possible Travers, so Travers wouldn't become suspicious. So Miss X was escorted to Travers by another officer as to not raise suspicion because if Travers believed that Miss X was helping the police, he could easily have someone take her out, kill her. So Miss X gave Travers the cigarettes and they spoke for about 20 minutes. Um, They could see that Miss X was like visibly shaking as she was talking to Travers, but Travers showed no sign of realizing that something was up. After her talk with Travers, Miss X was led outside where she fell into a heap and said he did it. Once she was composed, Detective Rao led her back inside where she had to sign a state, had to make a statement and sign it. Um, Travis had said to Miss X that the cops were trying to pin him for the murder and she asked him if he had killed Anita and he said he had. He instructed Miss X to go to his house and find a knife. Not really trying to pin the murder on you if you did it. Mm. It's just like solving the crime. Yeah. Just kind you're of not, like you're doing not your the fall guy know? there, buddy. You're the perpetrator. <laughs> So he instructed Miss X to go to his house to find a knife in the drawer that had a wooden handle. And Miss X asked Travers if that was the knife that he had used to kill Anita. And he said yes. He also instructed Miss X to find a pair of jeans that were really faded, that had blood on them, and to tell Les Murphy to get rid of the stolen car. At this point, Travers had also said that it hadn't just been him, Michael Murdoch, and Les Murphy that had been in the car that night, but also Les's older brother, Gary, Les's older brothers, Gary and Michael Murphy. Each had extensive criminal records and Michael was even a fugitive at the time of the murder. Travis had said that all five of them had been involved in the abduction and he began to laugh. Miss X had to tell him to stop because it wasn't funny. Travis finished by saying that the other guys were egging him on to do his thing. His, his thing was slitting her throat, just like he had done to the sheep. The statement was a huge step forward in the investigation, but more evidence was needed to convict. So the police asked another favor of Miss X. At this stage, it was all Miss X's word against Travers. Travers could just get onto the stand and deny everything. And Miss X also didn't have a very, she didn't have a clear past and a defense lawyer could easily get up and tarnish her credibility as an informant. The next time she would speak to Travers, it would be secretly recorded. So they had to prepare warrants and also they had to get John Travers's uncle on side. So Miss X and Travers's uncle went to Les Murphy to give him the message to get rid of the car, hoping that that would lead police straight to it, but he never left. On their return to the police station, um, the warrant to record the conversation was ready, but surveillance in those days, surveillance recording in those days wasn't, you know, it was more than conspicuous. Um, you know, it's a big recording pieces and like taping them on, you know, mm. hard to hide. So once again, Miss X was escorted, escorted, no, not escorted, escorted, escorted down to Travers. And as soon as he saw her, he asked if she had taken care of the knife and the jeans. She said she'd taken care of the jeans but wasn't able to find the knife. Miss X asked why they had killed Anita. And he said it was because she had seen their faces during the abduction and the rape. So he had to kill her. He told her he was going to try and break out of prison. Regardless of the murder of Anita, they had him, they had his blood sample so they could easily um, get him for the rape of the guy in Western Australia. So this is where it comes to show that John Travers wasn't the brightest penny in the bunch. You don't say. He planned on derailing a train so it could break the walls of the police station because the train station was right next to the police station. Then he kind of figured that it was pretty far-fetched. Yeah, tell me all about it, John. Yeah. Fuck with. So then his new plan was, 
So he told Miss X, tell Gary and McMurphy to be at the back of the police station at 3.30 in the morning. It's the only, it's only a skeleton crew at that time. The oldest bloke has the key. They don't check on me when the sun comes out, only during the night, about four times. So Miss X said she would deliver the message to the Murphys. After getting the recording device off of her, they once again congratulated her on a good job, but they needed her help again. On February 23rd, 1986, they asked to wire Miss X again to record a conversation with Michael Murdoch. They were hoping Murdoch would divulge where the two other Murphy brothers were and any other details of the murder of Anita, but it didn't go as planned as Murdoch was a little bit more wary to share information with Miss X than John Travers was. Um, But he mentioned to Miss X that he would probably be leaving sometime soon. After this, um, Miss X entered the witness protection program along with Travers's uncle and their kids. And holy shit, like if this woman hadn't, if this woman hadn't done what she did, right? Like that is so fucking brave, so brave, I, and insane. I can't, like, I cannot believe it. Also, thank God that John Travers was stupid enough to have the kind of relationship with his uncle's girlfriend where he would casually confess to crimes to her. All right, onward. So the next plan was arresting Michael Murdoch and Les Murphy for the murder of Anita. So um, once again, midnight, the team of officers was split in two with one half going to Michael Murdoch's mother's place and he didn't resist arrest and the other went to Granville where they found Les Murphy in bed with two women. Lucky you, Les. (laughs) And um, once again, he didn't resist arrest. Police then searched John Travers' house and found the bloody jeans he had worn the night of the murder and several other and several knives that were sent in for testing. Murdoch and Murphy were questioned again, now admitting to knowledge of Anita Cobby's murder, but stating that Travers was the one that killed her. According to Murdoch and Murphy, they didn't even see the murder occur. After interviewing Murdoch and Murphy, police interviewed Travers again. It was about four thirty a.m. in the morning, and Travers was made aware that new information in the Cobby murder case had come about, and that everything was pointing at him. And Travers quote said, "Who gave us up?" Rosetta said nothing and took Travers into the interview room. And then he began to open up about what actually happened on the 2nd of February, 1986. Travers stated that Les Murphy, Michael Murdoch, Gary Murphy and Michael Murphy were driving around in the stolen car when they came across Anita walking home. Travers and Murdoch were the ones to grab Anita. They pushed her into a car and they ripped her clothes off. After driving for a while, they stole money out of Anita's purse and used it to fill the car up with petrol. They held her down in the car in the petrol station so no one would see her. After filling the car up, they drove to Reen Road where they forced Anita out of the car into the paddock. They pushed her through a barbed wire fence. (laughs) (laughs) Les Murphy admitted to punching Anita once and walking her down the clearing, but he didn't have sex with her. Travers, Gary and Michael Murphy all attempted to have sex with Anita but got scared when cars were driving past on Reen Road. Travers decided that since he, since she'd seen their faces and heard their names, they had no choice but to kill her. Les, Michael and Gary Murphy and Michael Murdoch were walking back down to the car when John Travers approached them covered in blood. This second interview with John Travers took three hours and 15 minutes and he confessed to everything. At this point, they had John Travers, Michael Murdoch and Les Murphy, but they still needed to find Michael and Gary Murphy. Detective Kennedy went and visited Anita's parents, Grace and Gary, and told them that they had three suspects in custody, but they were still looking for two more. <laughs> okay, remember. <laughs> this is really this is rough. This is rough. They pushed her through a barbed wire fence. 
Good Lord. At 9am on February 24th, the whole world seemed to know that three men had been arrested in connection with the murder of Anita Cobby. Hopefully those Murphy boys were shitting themselves at this point in time. Oh, just you wait, doll. Travers, Murphy and Murdoch had to be taken to the first court appearance and the public were raging. A large crowd gathered around the courthouse, which was right next to the police station, and they wanted blood. They wanted these three men to hang for what they had done to Anita Cobby. A dummy was hung from a building near the courthouse and crowds were rocking the cars. The reading of the charges only took five minutes. John Travers, Michael Murdoch and Les Murphy were charged with car, with car theft, rape and murder and then taken back to the police station. All available officers were put on to guard the station and detectives now had to focus on finding Michael and Gary Murphy. Through a tip-off from an informant, police discovered on February 26, both brothers were hiding out in a resident in Glenfield, which was 32 kilometres from Blacktown, with two women, Deborah McGaskill and Mavis Saunders, who were, keeping, who were hiding them. At 10pm, 50 officers surround the house, surrounded the house. The doors were smashed with a sledgehammer and they found Michael Murphy on the couch with McGaskill's child in his lap. He put the child down, got down on the, and got down on the ground. Gary Murphy ran through the house to the back door where he was tackled by a member of the tactical response unit and Gary Murphy wet himself. Good. When Michael and Gary Murphy arrived at Blacktown Station, another angry crowd of people were gathered. According to Gary Murphy's interview, Michael Murphy and John Traffers spotted Anita. We were just going to grab, he says, we were just going to grab her handbag until John said, let's, let's take her with us. Michael Murphy and John Travers began assaulting Anita. Gary admitted to forcing Anita to give him to oral sex. Following Michael Murphy's interview, when police asked him why he didn't stop Anita from being murdered, he said to Ian Kennedy, I didn't want her to be killed. He's a maniac. It's his fault. I told him not to kill her. He's a fucking lunatic. I just wanted to piss off. Michael Murphy then stated that they'd all burned their clothes except for John Travers. They all tried to downplay their involvement. Detective Kennedy said they all said others did it. They were and are the ultimate cowards, cowards, which I suppose is to be expected. For the rest of 1986, John Travers, Michael Murdoch, Gary, Les and Michael Murphy all appeared in court several times before the trial, beginning in 1987. Anita's parents, Gary and Grace, were strong and composed, facing the media as much as they could, not resting until the men responsible for killing their daughter were behind bars. John Cobby continually deteriorated. After Anita's funeral, John was sent overseas to escape the tumultuous environment surrounding the trial. John began to slip further into his depression, self-medicating with drugs and alcohol to a point where he broke his leg and he had no memory of doing it. Then to escape the haunting memory of losing his love, he changed his name from John Cobby to John Francis. The trial of John Travers, Michael Murdoch and the Murphy brothers was set to begin March 16th, 1987. With emotions high and the public, security surrounded the court was up. Security surrounding the court was up to capacity. Everyone was searched upon entering the court. Gary and Grace Lynch held themselves with a dignity and composure unlike anything. They were there to represent their daughter, to make sure she was heard. On the first day of the trial, John Chavez pled guilty to all charges. He was taken to the cells and didn't return until sentencing months later. Jury selection was now starting, which was a problem for the defense. The media attention to this case had been thick and fast. The defendants were hated beyond belief, so finding them an impartial jury was of the utmost importance. And finally, they found eight men and four women to fill the jury. 
The prosecutor began with, there will be no doubt from the evidence given to you that she was brutally and savagely murdered and you would be less than human if you were not horrified about what you will hear in this case. Gary Lynch was called to stand to give some background on his daughter and her movements on her final day. On the second day of the trial, a newspaper article made it known to the public that at the time of Anita's murder, Michael Murphy was a prison escapee. What? Yep. I said that before. You probably didn't hear me. Sorry. Yeah, I, you did say that he was a fugitive, I think. Yeah. Um, with the article being published after the beginning of the trial, the jury would have had time to read it. So the judge ruled a mistrial and the trial recon- had to reconvene and started the following Monday. So that meant that Gary Lynch had to testify a second time. Oh. And when he was asked about having to go on the stand a second time, he said this. My wife and I are as strong as whales, lions, and elephants. 100%. The trial started on March 23rd, 1987. The media began their focus on Gary Murphy and his relation. And the. Okay, so there's <sighs> defense lawyers. They have a job to do and they have to do it. And the media fucking lost their shit at Gary Murphy's defense lawyer, and her name was Lee Johnson. So Lee Johnson had requested that Gary get tried separately from the other men because Gary said that he wasn't there. He made a new unsworn statement saying that the group had left, that he had left the group before Anita was abducted and this contradicted his original statement to police. And with it being unsworn, he couldn't be cross-examined. So cross-examined. So I don't know what an unsworn statement means. So it says an unsworn statement is a statement made by an accused person setting out the accused's version of the facts, which is not on oath and not subject to cross-examination. So Lee... Johnson stated that Gary's Gary Murphy's original statement had been made, made under duress because of the fractured jaw that Gary had apparently suffered during his arrest. It was then later proven that it had happened before, before. that. R- rumors began to circulate that since Lee Johnson was doing her job as a defense lawyer and that she was around the same age to Gary Murphy, that an illicit affair had begun between them. Lee Johnson later stated, I was committed to my client no matter what I thought of them. I always have and always will be. People didn't like that and I think they resented me for it quite unfairly. So the defense formed their case on the grounds of police brutality. The prosecution had an upwards of at least 40 witnesses, including signed confessions and then a recorded conversation between Miss X and John Travers. So the defense lawyers knew that the prosecution had a strong case and that the defendants had little to no chance of actually being found innocent. With going with police brutality basically would make the um, confessions unusable because they were made under duress. So this would likely get the charges moved to manslaughter, would be a, which would be a considerably lesser sentence. The defense also stated that it was John Travers alone who had murdered Anita, Anita Cobby and each defendant gave um, un like unsworn statements contradicting what they had originally said in the interviews, each reducing their involvement in the crime and putting the blame on someone else within the group. Michael Murphy stated, I wasn't there. And if I was there, I was there for sex, not murder. Les Murphy cried on the stand. Michael Murdoch claimed that he was there, but under coercion. The defense cross-examined police regarding the police police's brutality that the defense alleged was used during the arrest. Detective Kennedy was queried about a mark on Michael Murphy's head after the arrest and he was like, well, it was probably from when I had my head, my foot on his head because there were children in the house. Exactly. And, just and he had to be sh- restrained. Yeah. Not usually a gentle activity. So the defense were unsuccessful 
in, in pinning the police with police brutality. Their actions were justified. And this is like pretty fucked. So Easter fell during the trial and Lee Johnson, one of the defense lawyers, as a gesture to the defendants, left four Easter eggs on the table. And Sergeant Kennedy was like, nah, fuck this. And he smashed them on the table. Yeah, I support that. And threw it out. And then um, he watched later on as the defendants ate the crumbs of chocolate off the table while giggling to each other, something that happened often during the trial. They giggled to each other during the trial. That's nice. I'm glad they were having a fun time. Mm. The biggest thorn in the side of the defense was the star witness, Miss X. She had appeared during the committal hearings when John Travers lunged at her from his seat and threatened her life. The detectives were worried that this would deter her from testifying at the trial, but she rallied. In her testimony, she spoke about her conversation with John Travers and the recordings that were played, which clearly proved all five suspects guilty of the murder of Anita Cobby. Closing arguments began on June 9th, 1987. The jury left the court at 12 p.m. and by 9 p.m. they still hadn't reached a verdict. The jury was taken to a motel overnight and everyone, family, friends of Anita, police and supporters all left. Gary and Grace Lynch didn't know what to think. They thought the jury would find the defendants guilty immediately, but not. But now they were unsure of what outcome, what the outcome would be. Wednesday, June tenth, nineteen eighty-seven, the jury reached a verdict. Les, Michael, and Gary Murphy, as well as Michael Murdoch, were all found guilty. On Tuesday, the sixteenth, nineteen eighty-seven, John Travers, Michael Murdoch, Les, Gary, and Michael Murphy all stood in the dock to hear the sentence. Justice Maxwell said said the crown firstly alleged firstly alleged that after having assaulted and robbing the deceased they were conscious of the fact that she could recognize them and therefore agreed amongst themselves that she should be killed all of the others knew that travers was armed with a knife and they contemplated that travers would use the knife or might use the knife she was lying face down when the prisoner inflicted the fatal wounds the medical evidence established that she was both alive and conscious before the wounds were inflicted. One cannot establish precisely the length of time that she was subjected to the attacks giving giving rise to the injuries as described, but it's as open but it is as open on the evidence to conclude that it was at least upwards of an hour and a half. There is no doubt that apart from the humiliation degradation, fucking hell, I'm sorry, I'm sobbing, degradation and terror inflicted on this young woman. She was the victim of a prolonged and sadistic physical and sexual assault. Wild animals are given to pack assaults and killings. However, they do so for the purpose of survival and not as a result of degrading animal passion. Not so these prisoners. They assaulted in a pack for the purpose of satisfying their lust and killed for prevention of identification. Indeed, frequently they were observed to be laughing with, w- laughing one with the other and frequently were to be seen snickering behind their hands. The crime is exacerbated, exacerbated by the fact that the victim was almost certainly made aware of her impending death. This was a calculating killing done in cold blood. Therefore, I impose the following sentences. John Raymond Travers, Michael James Murdoch, Leslie Joseph Murphy, Michael Patrick Murphy, and Gary Stephen Murphy. First count of murder, I sentence you to penal servitude for life, never to be released. 
Detective Sergeant Kennedy, Rosetta, and Rao received commendations for the, from the police commissioner. It is seen as one of the best conducted investigations in Australia. The entire investigation took 22 days. The biggest wish around the investigators was that they wished that it, there had never been an investigation at all. The suspects all fell out with each other. They were refused contact with each other and other high-profile inmates such as Ivan Malat in Goulburn Prison. Everybody's just there hanging out in Goulburn. John Francis was granted $25,000 in compensation for the mental grievance of the murder of Anita Cobby. In 2016, John Francis changed his name back to John Cobby. In 1993, Gary and Grace Lynch started a homicide victim support group. They worked tirelessly until they passed away, Gary in 2008 and Grace in 2013. So there's now Grace's Place, which opened, it's either opened now or is opening this month, which is a trauma recovery center to help grieving young people who have suffered the loss of a loved one through homicide. Detective Kennedy stated that although Gary was the face of the couple to the media, Grace would be right behind him holding strong. And that's the murder of Anita Cobby. (laughs) I don't have words to describe how depressed I am currently feeling. That was one of the worst cases I think we've probably talked about in terms of sheer brutality and violence and just like meaninglessness. Yeah. And I feel disgusted. Yeah. But honestly, like shout out to those cops because that was a quick and tidy investigation. That was fast. Usually we're like, and eight years later, they still hadn't learned anything. Um, So I'd want to say... Source-wise, I got a lot of information from the case file episode of Anita Cobby. Case file. Um, that's where all of the quotes were from, were from the case file episode, and a lot of the facts that I had were from case file. And um, also uh, the book by Alan J. Whittaker, um, Anita Cobby, The Crime That Shocked the Nation, which is a great book if you want to read it. Um, I can't believe I picked this. I'm, I've been so wrecked over the last couple of days. I was up until – one o'clock last night going through everything. I finished work this afternoon and I sat at Macca's and I had a Big Mac and I did this and I feel wrecked right now. I think we should probably think about instead oh, of... Oh, Fifi just put her hand on my leg. Oh, comfort. <laughs> um, um, instead of self-medicating with alcohol after all of these recordings, maybe we should see therapists. Maybe. <laughs> um, I just wanted to, from like the footage that I watched of this case, um, once again, like Gary and Grace Lynch. What incredibly strong people. I don't know how they did it. And their daughter, Catherine, who's continuing their memory. Um, Just remarkable people. I don't know how they did it. It, Full of dignity. And Grace was literally just full of grace. Mm -hmm. Um, It also just brings to mind that a lot of other crimes that have involved women just being, just walking home. Yeah, like it's a you, very you, sad thread that has come like through a lot of our episodes. Jill Ma, because nothing's changing. And it's hard not to feel scared about something like this happening to me or to someone I know. But it was different back then. It was innocent times. And from what I read after this, everybody, women in Blacktown were didn't feel like they could go outside. People started carrying weapons because they were scared that it was going to be next because these five guys from Blacktown turned out to be absolutely monstrous. Absolutely monstrous. Yeah. 
Well, that was a great episode, Jess. I'm so um, sorry I put you everybody all through that. Take a shot of whiskey to help you numb the pain. Kind of feel like a Guinness, if I'm honest. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not allowed, am I? Jess is banned from drinking Guinness ever again. We'll tell you the story in Murder in the Land of Oz after hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all you need to know is that I got in a bit of trouble. Um, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I'm so sorry I put you all through that. Um, make sure you're rating and reviewing on your podcast apps and also please leave us a review on Facebook. We love seeing it. We love the feedback. Um, yeah, we've got how many more cases in New South Wales? Three. Three, three more? Yeah, 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 three more. Um, so then we'll be moving on to Victoria. So I guess get it in your suggestions now as to what you want us to cover. Yeah, absolutely. If you've got any any yeah. crackers, we'd love to take a crack at them. Yeah. Um, do you have something nice from the week to end on so we don't? No, my life is one day of pain after the other. <laughs> do I have something nice? Um, I went and I house sit, I house sat my old, my cat that's living with my ex. Oh, nice. And it was really fun. That is Hanging nice. out with my cat, so that was nice. Um, yeah, I'm so sorry. That was such a downer. But, yeah, um, we'll see you next week. What's our case next? Um, not next week, next fortnight. What's next the next case? Next fortnight we are talking about the murder of Carly and Candelise Pierce. Never heard of it, so I'm so excited. This is a case that I, like, watched unfold, obviously, from, like, behind a computer screen. So I'm very excited to get the chance to talk about it. Is this the mother and daughter? Yeah. <gasps> No, I know now. Oh, my God, I'm so excited. Yes. You may know it as the bodies in the suitcase. That's that it. Is. Yes. Stay okay, tuned cool. for that one, folks. So rate, Also review. not going to be very cheery. Nah. None of these episodes of these are, are that cheery. cheery. None of these are cheery. We'll try and come up with a nice fun murder for us all to talk about. But um, um, Also, we'll post in the show notes Grace's Place. Yes, absolutely. Um, and we'll also post... Um, some articles about Anita. She was a really remarkable person. Also one of the most stunning people ever. Very um, pl- a place in the sun, Elizabeth Taylor vibes that mm, I got from her. 100%. Just stunning. Okay. Well, have a good day. Thanks, team. Okay. Bye. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.